Welcome to Committing Faith in Public. This is the podcast for people who want to be inspired by individuals and communities of faith doing good work in public. Our guests tell stories of their work of weaving a more just, kind, and diversity-inclusive society. Our starting place for stories is Oklahoma because that is where we live and because many people, both in Oklahoma and beyond, are surprised when they learn that interreligious friendly, pro-democracy, diversity welcoming, public good oriented religion even exists in Oklahoma. So through this podcast, we're spreading good news and encouraging you in your faith and public life work. I'm Gary Peluso Verden, President Emeritus at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and working on the Religion and Public Life Initiative for the seminary. So I'm at Fellowship Congregational Church, a United Church of Christ church in Tulsa. Our guest today is the pastor, the Reverend Chris Moore. And I'm here to talk with them about this congregation's, what I would think is a nearly unique ministry in Tulsa, in historic, its historic uh, public stances on social issues, and what led Chris and the congregation to display its nativity set last Advent and Christmas season in a way that caught the attention of, from what I could see online, the New York Times, CNN, Fox, USA Today. Did I miss anybody on that list? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much that. NPR. <laughs> NPR, that's right, and NPR. Yep. So welcome. Uh, <laughs> so you. glad you're here. Me too. First, Chris, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Why don't you say something about the path in ministry that led you to become the pastor here at Fellowship? So I'm a second career pastor. That's a growing rank uh, yes. these days, uh, for sure. And someone who kind of came back to the church later in life and, and came back through social justice causes at, at the church, connection there. And when I moved back to Oklahoma, joined a, a church in Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. uh, Mayflower, Mayflower uh, right. Congregational. Uh, and that was the first time I was really ever exposed uh, to any great amount to the United Church of Christ. And Mayflower is a big church, and I was there as a member for 10 years okay. before I decided to go back to seminary. And, Which was uh, where? At Phillips Theological Seminary. <laughs> Full I knew, disclosure. I knew we'd have a, a, an opportunity to say that at some point. And so that was where the senior minister at, at uh, Mayflower had graduated from, and, and lots of the people in the area had, right. had gone to that school. So it was a, not only geographically a natural fit, but turned out to be just a, a really very, very positive experience for me. And I had the unique um, ability amongst my classmates of somebody who could actually take something that Brandon Scott said in class uh-huh, right. and take it to the Bible study that I was teaching unedited. Right. right. At, Mayflower. At, At Mayflower. At Mayflower. Right. And, it was, and people love that. Um, so I didn't have the problem that lots of other folks do. How do they take that information and present it to their to their congregation? In the midst of that uh, work at at Mayflower when I was in seminary, thanks to the donation of a an individual, we had some money to further the cause of the UCC in the Oklahoma City area, mm-hmm. and it was decided by a group of people to try to start uh, a church in Norman. Norman okay. seemed like a good okay. ground right. Uh, right. for that university uh, town. Right, so I ended up being the founding pastor of what is now called First Congregational. 
of Norman, mm-hmm. uh, which was then called Norman UCC. Mm-hmm. And I'd forgotten that. That started in the in the living room of Don and Kay Holiday, um, who are still members there, very mm-hmm. active part of that church, and and of course well known amongst the LGBTQ community uh, for for their. Don was one of the attorneys on the marriage equality mm-hmm. uh, lawsuit, mm-hmm. and Kay's tireless work for PFLAG um, hmm. continues to this mm-hmm. day. So. Uh, lovely people, and and we uh, started that in their living room, and then I was there for about four years, and ended up going back to Mayflower as the first associate there. Uh, so came back and mm-hmm. that had that transition, and served there for about four years as well. When this position came open in Tulsa, mm-hmm. the UCC is not very big in right. the state of Oklahoma. Right. So when full-time positions open up, you have to really seriously consider that. And I don't know that I was completely ready to leave Mayflower, but it was a, certainly an opportunity for me. Uh, there was a, another associate in, in Lori Walkie uh, there mm-hmm. who I felt mm-hmm. could handle all of those tasks and more. And so I, I uh, came up here, uh, it will be seven years in December. I started December 1st, um, seven years ago. Very good. And when I said at the opening that this is a unique or nearly unique congregation mm-hmm. in Tulsa, I'm sure that a, a large part of that, uh, the uh, legacy, that, that reflects a legacy of Russ Bennett. Indeed. Why don't you say a little bit about who Russ Bennett was? Yeah, Russ was the pastor here for 37 years, 37-ish years, a, a very long tenure even in, in UCC circles, and was just pivotal uh, in the community. You, of course, knew him. Lots of people knew him. Mm-hmm. He casts a very long shadow here mm-hmm. um, and did some really groundbreaking work, uh, not only with the organizations that exist, but then really helped found the Tulsa Interfaith Alliance mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. do a lot of, of groundbreaking work in, in, in really specific and profound ways i mean he's it's it's hard to understate the impact that he's had Mm -hmm. that's sort of witnessed by the fact that when you move into town as the new pastor of the church that he served it's just a little intimidating Mm -hmm. to look around and note that like most of the awards at the big Uh organizations around town are named after russ bennett you know so he certainly left an impact on this church and um still have quite a few people in the congregation who um, who love him dearly and and miss him terribly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in his tenure, long tenure here, were there times that the church has taken a a, um, a stance that was kind of controversial and relatively conservative Christian Tulsa or Oklahoma area uh, prior to uh, the stance that uh, the church and you took uh, regarding uh, immigration, the border, and the like, the nativity set, which we're going to get to in a little bit. But uh, have there been other times uh, that were preparatory? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, so it was a different time and a different era. So how you live those things out. Right, that's we, true. You know, that's we true. Did, there right. was no social media then. Right. So right. Russ was published a lot in the paper, uh, was sort of, you know, really well-known uh, letters to the editor mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, was very visible, lots of newspaper articles, lots of public um, speaking that he would do on on a variety of issues, and then he was, you know, the person who really helped carry this church into its open and affirming stance, and mm-hmm. that was, mm-hmm. you know, in the nineties. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, 
it's been a long time right. uh, that this church has been openly mm-hmm. open and affirming mm-hmm. um, and and has he he led the church through the process that the United Church of Christ has so that the congregation took a vote on that mm-hmm. it was a nearly unanimous vote mm-hmm. there were some mm-hmm. some families that left mm-hmm. um, but that it was important to make that stance mm-hmm. uh, and to you know the, it's important to have that process in other mm-hmm. words so that mm-hmm. you you know he knew that he could say in a public way mm-hmm. if you are LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. um, uh, which was not the language that was used course, then, right. uh, that, that you would be welcome here and uh, that he could move from that vote forward mm-hmm. in a much more public okay. sort of way okay. um, and did so. Good. Let's talk a little bit about what happened uh, uh, just about a year ago now. I remember correctly from the newspaper articles, there was a, a trip you took to the border mm-hmm. um, that I want you to say something about. And then there was something about that you had put a fence around the nativity set, but it wasn't until changing the signboard yeah. out front that attention, a lot of attention started coming your way. The, the impetus for this began really from our involvement, from the congregation's involvement with uh, the New Sanctuary Network and really a a growing and expanding effort to contend with the ramifications of some real serious policy changes by this administration in regards to immigration. And that took many forms for us, uh, but but one of them was uh, noting that, you know, it's, it's important to note that this idea of putting a fence around the nativity set did not was not original to us right right um, in good preacher fashion we stole you know a good idea from somewhere else uh-huh. and uh, credit where credit is due there there was an episcopal church in in indianapolis uh, it's actually several churches around the country who had done this kind of let's say liturgical art mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. right um, it certainly is a public art demonstration absolutely right. yeah and that was that was the point of that now what was interesting is that we we brought that up as a congregation in the council you know our, our leadership and the idea was unanimously supported uh, so we had that we put the fence up and the, most of the responses we were getting were uh, somewhere along the lines of oh how sad! Somebody is uh-huh. stealing, stealing your, you know, your <laughs> right. pieces from your nativity, and you've had to protect it. Uh-huh. And I was like, "This art ain't working. <laughs> right, we got to fix something about right. this because right. we're not getting across the message." So, our sign, uh, for better or for worse, is probably one of the ways that we are known uh, in the community. We have a a marquee sign uh, that sits out right on Harvard, Harvard it's, Avenue. It's way out at the front of our property. Five, eight, church. seven, right. seven, eight thousand cars a day. See right. it, and and it's pretty visible. So we changed the sign to really speak to what we were trying to get across with the. With, and to be honest with you, now I don't even remember what we put on the sign, um, but it was it was clear that we were making that connection to the nativity uh, scene. Was and Jesus was, was a migrant. Was one of the words in the sign? Yeah, maybe sure. it was Jesus was a migrant. Yeah, yeah something like that. Yeah, or something along those lines, which is kind of what we were trying to right. get across with that whole scene right. of the nativity. And that's when attention really rose very quickly. It was local news stations who I think were just driving past and saw that, and mm-hmm. and, and that was within hours of changing the, the marquee. <laughs> Literally, we had local <laughs> folks, and uh, and then it just kind of climbed from there. To be honest with you, I really I, I never thought it was going to be a piece that was going to generate media exposure. In fact, I did not 
seek that or, uh-huh. or go out. And uh-huh. then we wrestled for a while about whether we were going to post that on social media, whether we were going to do something beyond. Because for us, it was really just a statement. It was an art piece that we were trying to push forth to people who witnessed it, who saw mm-hmm. it, and mm-hmm. not have it be more than mm-hmm. more than that. But to you know, to go back to our discussion about Russ and, and, and the way that he did things, it's a very different world and you have sometimes less control than you used to have right. over what happens. Right. Um, and so you have to you have to know here's gonna come the on, onslaught and you have to be prepared for that because the media is going to ask you all kinds of questions, and then they're going to go in and, and edit out the 15 seconds of the most provocative thing that you said. And it may not even be the thing, like, it, sometimes it's out of context, and, you know, so. Right, right. You just have to know that that's coming. Right. You might have tried to nuance something that right. uh, they didn't either want nuance or catch the work. nuance. No, not, no, especially not on TV media. Right, right. Uh, you when can there's occasionally get clips. that in print media. Yeah. So what were the local reactions, and how did you learn uh, how were those local reactions communicated to you? Well, in a variety of ways. Uh, most of them were posts on the Facebook page. And then a lot of people who would call, they would typically call after hours and leave a message on the mm-hmm. on the answering machine. Mm-hmm. And so we just kind of you know, came to expect we'd come in in the morning, there'd be several messages. Now, they were not really the overall... Percentage, I would say, sixty forty positive. Mm-hmm. There, there were you know several messages that were clearly not you know supportive of this, and mm-hmm. most of that centered around the Jesus is a refugee claim. Huh. Well, that's not you know you're wrong about that. Oh, okay. It's interesting. You know, yeah. I was like, well, right. you can oh. go read Matthew if you right. like. But I don't know how you don't get that from right. Me. Right. Only if you excise Matthew from the Bible. Right. Can you, can you actually say he wasn't? Right. Weird. Well, there was argument about you know whether he was you know seeking poli- you know asylum or you know, oh, okay. you know there's right, all right. that sort of you know discussion about okay well, right immigrant right. migrant refugee right. asylum all right. different right right as if the only place to have any comment from the Bible on how we should treat strangers or migrants is in Matthew. Right, right. Like, that's colored by all these other statements, which are all over the place. Like the Torah. Right. Right. Everywhere. Everywhere. There were national reactions. Did you get any, uh, besides the media attention, did you get, you know, people from elsewhere in the country who contacted the church and either said yay or boo because of this Um, going on? We got some notice, you know, the national church, the UCC contacted us. Um, Tracy Blackman, who's the yes. the head of Justice Witness Ministries, mm-hmm. left a message on that on the answering machine. A very nice message of support, and and got some support from other places as well. The New York Times did a, a, a nice mm-hmm. feature, mm-hmm. Uh, a nice piece on it. Mostly, I think the interest from the national media was not, oh, here's something new and unique because this had happened they knew that this had happened in other places whereas i'm not sure local people necessarily knew that but it was the sense of that happening in the what is considered the buckle of the bible belt right here in tulsa oklahoma right and that that gave another little edge to it i Mm -hmm. think that made it interesting Mm -hmm. 
Speaking of uh, the buckle of the Bible Belt, also we enjoy in Tulsa what uh, what a lot of folks in the country don't know, which is a really strong interfaith, interreligious yeah. community. Yeah. I assume that you had uh, a bunch of your friends. Chris is really involved in the larger community, um, both in uh, social justice and kind of moral order matters around here, as well as uh, with the interfaith community. So I assume you had lots of support coming from from your friends and colleagues around town? I did. Now, you know, to be fair, it was a, a particularly Christian-specific provocation. True. Right? That's and, right. And so that there, there were some who didn't necessarily understand. They knew that it was a big deal, that I was getting a lot of exposure. Didn't We had some talk about, so why was that? Mm. That's not as... Not as much as you think. I mean, certainly the the Muslim folks in town are familiar with that story. The the Jewish folks in town, certainly the, the rabbis, were very familiar with that with that story and, right. and that connection. Yeah, there was a good support. Sort of that sense of, uh, you know, oddly enough, in the interfaith community, um, it's not even odd at all. Frankly, it's you have also a high degree, a high percentage of immigrants. Right. You have people who, right. you know, who who maybe are first generation here or mm-hmm. even second generation mm-hmm. here but have a real tie culturally and religiously mm-hmm. to this sense of the Jews every year as part of their ritual, you know, they're they're doing this Passover mm-hmm. and they're mm-hmm. they are remembering mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. fact it, it they're mm-hmm. They're told mm-hmm. this isn't something. Mm-hmm. This is you. Mm-hmm. Like we we live this out. Right. This, this ritual is, today. is you. Right. This is today. You are yeah. have yeah, been yeah. freed from slavery in Egypt. Right. And so it's that whole sense of ownership of where we came from and 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 what our what our story is like. In the interviews with the national media that I read, um, you repeated multiple times that there's a difference between addressing a matter that is political and moral and trying to stay away from partisan politics. Mm -hmm. Based on the reactions you got from people either locally or nationally, how well did you think people hear that distinction between something which is moral and political, where we have value propositions we're bringing from our faith traditions uh, that are intersecting or conflicting Mm -hmm. with value propositions in political realm versus a church and state matter? Yeah, I don't think they hear that at all. My experience is that that's the toughest part of the argument to make. And in part, you know, I come from a tradition here in both the Congregational Church and the United Church of Christ that, that has a strong belief in the separation of church and state, right. but also is able to maintain this strong belief that the gospel is inherently political. And so mm-hmm. you have to engage mm-hmm. in those issues. So you have to have you have to hold that tension and be able to do that in in effective ways. This was this was a challenge, and we thought about that. And to be honest with you, one of the things I tried to say in every interview that I had, and some of some of the interviews that didn't make the cut, mm-hmm. um, was to say that we did this liturgical art piece mm-hmm. in part because uh, as a means of confession. Hmm. that we Mm -hmm. also had not Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the previous eight years of Mm. an administration that was also deporting a lot of people. That's true. Albeit in very, very different ways, but still deporting a lot of people. And and the immigration system was just as broken then and just as flawed and just as racist then as it is now. 
and we were really saying nothing mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. And so there is a place, I think, for us to do some self-examination about saying, okay, well, we want to claim, we want to hold this high ideal, and how well are we living that out? Mm-hmm. Like, so it, it's, it should be acknowledged that we did wait until uh, there was a shift mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in party politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when we that's when our outrage grew up. And, mm-hmm. and so we have to, I think, you know, have a have a conversation as church and as activists to say, if we claim these as moral positions, then they're moral positions, regardless of who's, who's in, in office. office. Right. Even though we have to admit we are partisan in the sense that we belong to or adhere to a particular party, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of conversation going on right now, really interesting conversation, especially amongst younger folk who are just not prescribing to that binary anymore. Mm-hmm. And they're mm-hmm. just not like, I don't care what label you're going to put on this. This is what I think is right. And, and so you see that in the in the rise of evangelicals who are resisting sort of the the GOP platform. Right. Especially saying, the younger evangelicals. Right, right. And saying, no, wait a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can't, can't go along. Absolutely. Well, I really admire you trying to uh, make that distinction between religion and politics on the one hand and church and state on the other. I teach that. Yeah. Um, I teach that in every Sunday school class when I have an opportunity, and I teach that in my uh, Christianity democracy class. And it is. It's a once you see the difference, you see why they're necessarily related. Yeah. Uh, as in religion and politics, whereas church and state, yes, it's it's not a it's not a um, it's not a big thick wall. But there is a fence. There's Swiss cheese. There right. is there is right. a division between the two uh, between a a, a state supported church yeah. or state supported religion versus a public square in which. People of different faith viewpoints are bringing their viewpoints right. and and um, and trying to affect policy right. uh, eventually based on it, as well as, as just the basic question of uh, what kind of society we want to live in. Mm-hmm. What do we owe to our neighbors? Religion and politics both talk about values. And so we come to those things, we come to those ideologies mm-hmm. on one side or theologies on another mm-hmm. based on those values. Yep, so how absolutely. do we talk about those things? And in some ways, it's just different sets of language for talking about the same thing. Correct. Right. Correct. And so how do we how do we use one to influence the other? And how do we uh, really, beyond that, beyond the influence conversation, I think it's important that we are able to have some integrity about those two things. So that, to me, is the real issue, is that we have people who clearly ascribe to a set of values on Sunday morning that they cast aside Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Wednesday through mm -hmm, Saturday, mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. and and operate in a totally different, right, so... Which makes the faith irrelevant to a good part of life. Right. Did the um, liturgical art display and all the reactions that, again, you said the church didn't really anticipate all of the public attention it would get. Mm -hmm. So how did this affect the conversations within the congregation? So it's a congregation that, you know, as going back to Russ's uh, long shadow, that's very used to having that sort of political umbrella hanging over them, so to speak. And so that it's, it's just not new to them. And the controversy Mm -hmm. is not, uh, Mm -hmm. is not new to them. So, you know, I think it's really probably important to say that, in my tenure, which has, again, only been six years, 
that was a not even the biggest mm-hmm. like you know this was this is a congregation who a couple of years into my tenure was protested for six weeks in a row by a very you know sort of a Westboro Baptist style group that stood out on our edges of our property and had bullhorns and you could hear them during service shouting terrible things and holding up uh, signs and they did that pretty aggressively for for several weeks in a row including easter sunday right uh, well that's right Easter Sunday, right and i think that was the same year they showed up at the seminary's graduation they did yes yeah yeah uh, that's a group that I'd had experience mm-hmm. with before mm-hmm. at Mayflower mm-hmm. and, and in other places, but that this congregation hadn't had, and they hadn't been protested in that form or fashion uh, before. So it was a new thing. So, you know, to have some controversy about through the media and a few phone calls mm-hmm. seemed fairly minor, mm-hmm. I think, at that point. They mm-hmm. were, and, and it was a, you know, it's, a, it's an issue that the congregation feels very strongly about. Mm-hmm. So. I think it's really interesting to pastor a congregation that is in this stage of its life cycle and existence where they've been well prepared right. over time to think about the public and moral and religious and the personal and all, mm-hmm. all mixed up, mixed in together Right. Uh, to think of it as a unit. Um, have you been a part of a congregation at all that, that was starting from a very different place? that maybe didn't have all that great ground preparation so that, like you said, this business with the nativity set wasn't even the most controversial right. thing that you had or difficult right. thing you had to deal with in, right. in, a, in a mere six years. Because yeah. I'm thinking about people listening to this who may be thinking, well, I wonder if my congregation could do something like that and what advice you might have if they're thinking about a prophetic action, uh, but they may be at a different part of their their life cycle as far mm-hmm. as the groundwork or the spade work having been done for this kind of public act. My advice would be that you have to you have to think about that groundwork first. Now I am lucky that I came in here again, Russ having really prepared that ground, but really even before that, to think about the whole tenure, the church started in nineteen fifty and it char- started as a split from Second Presbyterian Church. And that split occurred because the pastor of Second Presbyterian in 1950 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was wanting to uh, join a black couple to the church mm. who, who had come and mm-hmm. attended. Mm-hmm. And they were you know, roundly denounced by the presbytery. And mm-hmm. uh, he was eventually brought up on charges even because mm-hmm. he was going to go ahead and do it. And uh, they told him no. And then they were going to bring him up on charges. Mm-hmm. He eventually left the church and took about half of them with him. And and started started fellowship then ironically the story is several years later here at fellowship then an african-american couple came to join and they weren't allowed to even here Mm -hmm. right so Mm -hmm. that conversation Mm -hmm. really continued Mm -hmm. and not in ways that went one direction Mm -hmm. like you would expect Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and by the time you brought new people in then Mm -hmm. you had recreated that Mm -hmm. right so i say it's important work for pastors to do provocative things with their congregation in the ways that they can do them. And that'll be contextual. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the argument was always had in classes at seminary that people would always say, well, I, this is really eye-opening to me, this information mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. getting and this mm-hmm. new way of thinking, but I can't take it back mm-hmm. to my folks right. in small-town Oklahoma right. and do this. And that was an easy, I think, out and not enough pressure was put on us as leaders to say, 
yeah, but you can. And if you believe that that's the truth and it's eye-opening to you and expands your faith, why do you not think that will happen for other people? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Depending on how you frame it. Like, that's your task mm-hmm. now, is how do mm-hmm. you go and frame that for folks? Now, that's easy for me to say because I didn't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. I'd just come back and just mm-hmm. regurgitate mm-hmm. straight from my notes and everything was great. In fact, it would be expected of you. In fact, yeah, my challenge is actually the opposite. Uh-huh. Like, in some ways, like how do I help people uh, appreciate their their place in the tradition, mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. to and mm-hmm. and before we throw the baby out with the bathwater, mm-hmm. let's mm-hmm. let's look at some of the reasons that, and, and let's look at some of the theologies and some of the, like you know, amongst white liberal congregations uh, of which my church is deeply ingrained in that tradition. We don't have a very good theology of sin. In fact, we don't have any theology of sin often. And that's really critical for us if we're beginning to talk about white privilege. Absolutely. Or we're beginning right. to talk about really examining our history or looking at our place in the world and the role that particularly people who look like me, mm-hmm. white, heterosexual males, mm-hmm. you know, cisgendered males, how we impacted mm-hmm. This country, and mm-hmm. if we don't have some sort of sense of contrition mm-hmm. or uh, confession and then mm-hmm. absolution, and mm-hmm. that's it's a really challenging piece of work to do. It is, and I think it's not only the seeing it systemically, but one's personal stake in keeping things as they are or making things right. different. It's right. a personal stake, not just a. It's not just about changing the system. Right. I mean, the systems in some ways reflect what goes on inside of each of us. So that's the groundwork that's important to do at churches. And I think you can get there in lots of ways. We tend to do church in ways that are really comfortable. And we sort of drift towards the comfort side Mm -hmm. of things. And I Mm -hmm. think we actually need to to think about, even if you're talking about uh, changing the carpet, Mm -hmm. which can be one of the most controversial Mm -hmm. things in the church, right? right? (laughs) How do you use that as a chance to talk about sin and forgiveness mm-hmm. and you know confession mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. absolute all of those things? Mm-hmm. How do you how do you use that as an opportunity to begin to lay the groundwork so that when you get to a tougher conversation mm-hmm. like white privilege, mm-hmm. you have some foundation to build on, and maybe you're not even doing it for you, maybe. Like Russ Bennett, you're building for a future down right. the road and, right. and knowing that you're always trying to establish something coming. Great. Chris, if people want to know more about Fellowship Congregational Church, where would you send them besides your physical address <laughs> here on Harvard? What's your internet address? Well, we are at uh, ucctulsa.org. Um, so you can always go there or you can Google fellowship. Well, there's several fellowship churches in Tulsa. There are. There's a, a, of different denominations. Um, so you'd have to be sure to include UCC as part of that. We are the only UCC church east of I-35 in the state. So we are, huh. um, you know, we're kind of out here on an island in terms of the the United Church of Christ and also not a denomination that's very well-known. Well-known in this part of the country. Yeah, right. Yep. Um, yep. So, and, and usually connected to the Church of Christ, which we don't have that connection. Right, which is well-known in this part of the country. Exactly, right. right. And we, we come from a, it's fair to say, a different perspective than the, than the Church of Very Christ. Very much. We're grateful for it. Yeah. Chris Moore, thank you so much for being on Committing Faith in Public, which you all do really well. Well, thank you. Take care. This has been Committing Faith in Public, a podcast from the Religion and Public Life Initiative at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
Copyright PTS and Gary Peluso Verdend. The views and opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect an official position of Phillips Theological Seminary.